And mentioned earlier, uh, Jared, our pastor, is uh, on vacation, much-deserved vacation, he and his family, so you guys are stuck with me this morning. My name is Lanny, and uh, Andrew talked about picking out a song so that goes along with Judges 13 was kind of difficult. Uh, coming up with the sermon was a little difficult also, but there, as I studied this passage, initially I was like, man, what am I going to talk about here? But as I studied it, uh, spent more time in it, and uh, God really just revealed a lot of truth that I think we can see here in, in the Scripture, as all Scripture is. Um, before we jump in too much, I just want us all to think about something. If you're a believer here, you've been walking with the Lord for some time, I want you to think back on your walk and just maybe think of a time where you found yourself in a spiritual funk. Maybe it was a time of of dryness. Maybe it was a time where you felt uh, some sort of spiritual disconnection, a distance from the Lord. Maybe things that once brought you great joy, uh, hymns and passages of Scripture that induced worship in your heart, no longer did those things for you. They just didn't move you the same way they once did. Maybe you have come to a place in your life where you don't even give God much thought at all. Life can do this to us. This life that we live in, the pace that we live in, can be very overwhelming at times. There's also these idols that we put before ourselves, these false gods that can block out the voice of God, and we can come to a place of apathy towards God. So as we look at our passage this morning, we're going to see an entire people, Israel, God's chosen people, who seem content with their distance from the Lord. They seem content with their idolatry. They seem apathetic towards God. We're going to be looking at the story of Samson's miraculous birth. And as we do this, I always think it's very important that we look at where we are in Scripture. We want to see it in the proper context. So, if this is your first time with us, or maybe you've been out the last few weeks, or maybe you just need a reminder... This summer, we've been studying the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges is the history of the Israelite people after the death of Joshua as they've been led into the promised land. So as we've studied this book, we've kind of seen this cycle of rebellion, the cycle of disobedience. But God is a covenant God. He's a God of promises. And we know that through Abraham, he promised to make a people for himself, a people set apart for him, a holy people. And God has kept his promise by delivering Israel from Egypt. He delivered them out of slavery through Moses. He brought them through the desert. And through Joshua, he brought them into the promised land. So as God did this, as he brought them into the promised land, he commanded them to throw out the inhabitants of the land. There were these guys, that the Canaanites, who were a pagan people who were living in the land. And when we look at this, on the surface, it can seem almost cruel, unjust, that God would throw them from their homeland. But God, you have to remember that God wants a people set apart. He wants a people who only worship Him. And He knew if He allowed this pagan culture to commingle with the Israelites, it would mean terrible things for them. And we see that it does mean terrible things for them. So God wants a people who only worship Him. He wants a people 
who put no other gods before him. And he still does today. So from the beginning of Judges, we see that the Israelites are failing to follow through on this promise. They don't completely uh, throw out the inhabitants of the land. And I want you guys to look at, we're going to be mainly in Judges 13, but flip to Judges 2 in your Bibles. We're going to look at verse 1 through 3. And here we see God speaking through the angel of the Lord to the people as they failed to throw out these Canaanites. The angel of the Lord addresses the people and he says this. Now the angel of the Lord said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. So here we see God's judgment on his people. He's giving them over to the consequences of their sin. And as he does this, as we look through this book of Judges, we see that there are dire ramifications for his people. So, we've talked about this in previous weeks, but I think we need to repeat it here. As we've moved through the book of Judges, we've seen this seven-step pattern develop. The first step is that the people rebel against God. The second step is God is angered by this. Third, God gives them over to their enemies, and those enemies oppress them. Fourth, we see the people crying out to God in repentance, crying out for deliverance. Fifth, God raises up a judge who saves the people. Sixth, there is rest and peace in the land. And seven, the judge dies, and the cycle begins again and again and again. So as we've studied this book, we've seen this cycle over and over But one thing that we've seen is as we've gone through this book, as the years progress, the cycle becomes less distinct. The judges become more corrupted. The nation seems to be falling deeper and deeper into apostasy, deeper and deeper into this idolatry. And so we have this downward spiral. Idolatry in the day of the Israelites 3,000 years ago probably looks a little different than it does for us here in the United States today. We don't struggle as much with worshiping pagan gods. That that obviously still occurs, but it's not as big of a struggle uh, for us here in America. But Tim Keller says this about idolatry. He says, Idolatry is making a good aspect of creation, marriage, mountains, business, and so on, into the ultimate source of security, identity, and power. And so false gods are a thorn. When we make something into an idol, it continually makes us miserable. If we fall short of it, or if we might fall short of it, it robs us of our joy. And idols are snares. They trap When we make something into an idol, it binds and enslaves us. We have to have it, so we cannot say no to it. We are addicted to it. So as we've studied this book of Judges, we've seen that the idols that the Israelites worshipped literally have enslaved them. Literally. They're enslaved and they're, and they're brought under oppression by other nations and other peoples. And the temptation as we study this book for us is to say, why are they so stupid? 
Why do they keep running back to these false gods that bring misery and oppression? Why can't they just get their act together? But here's the thing. If we fail to see ourselves in the Israelites, if we fail to see our own lust for idol worship, then we miss the point. If we fail to see this, we're going to fail to see the goodness of a long-suffering, enduring, graceful, merciful, loving God. And we're going to fail to see how that loving God seeks to save His people despite their disobedience. So, as we begin to look at our Scripture this morning, we start in chapter 12, we're just kind of reminded that last week we saw just how far into corruption the Israelites had fallen. We, we, we had a really disturbing uh, story last week of Jephthah who sacrificed his only daughter. We saw that he judged for six years and then he died. The remainder of chapter 12 is dedicated to these three successive judges. We don't really, aren't told much about them. We get some abbreviated descriptions about their families, uh, about the amount of time they ruled, and that's about it. There's no mention of the cycle. There's no mention of deliverance. We have Ibzon that judged for seven years, Elon, ten years, Abdon, eight years. And it seems that there was a time of relative peace in the land, but as we've seen throughout this book, uh, that changes quickly. Let's take a look at 13.1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them over into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. So we've seen this cycle over and over again in Judges. The Israelites again have fallen into apostasy. They've abandoned their God for these little gods, these gods who never satisfy. And so they've abandoned God for idol worship. And they're being lorded over by the Philistines. And this has been going on for 40 years. So before we jump too far into this passage, there's one thing I want to point out. As, as we go through this passage this morning, you're going to see that there's no cry out for deliverance. So multiple aspects of this passage and in the Samson narrative seem to indicate that the Israelites have become very comfortable with Philistine rule. Maybe they felt more secure. Maybe they, there was just a malaise and apathy but they seem pretty comfortable with it. Samson fraternizes with the Philistines. They seem to tolerate and embrace their culture. Samson's parents, we kind of see this spiritual dullness. They have a difficulty recognizing the angel of the Lord. They even give Samson, their son, who is dedicated to the Lord, and he's named after a pagan sun god. So we can see that they've fallen greatly. Long gone are the days where Israel remembers God's commands to be set apart for Him alone and to worship Him alone. They seem so far separated from that that they really have no urge to repent. They have no urge to be free from oppression. They seem completely enslaved by their idols. And enslaved to the point where they don't even recognize the predicament they're in. Now, flip back to chapter 2, and I just want to contrast this with what we saw in chapter 2. Let's read 2 verse 4. Now this is after uh, the angel of the Lord uh, 
brings condemnation on them, and, and this is their response. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So earlier in the book, earlier in their history, years before, we see a people who were grieving over their sin. But here in chapter 13, we see a people who have lost their sensitivity to sin. They don't even seem to understand their need for deliverance. So, this is important for us to see. One thing we need to get from this is that idolatry leads to apathy towards God. This is where we find the Israelites here in chapter 13, and this is what we have to guard our hearts against. As I mentioned earlier, idols enslave us. As we put our jobs or our comfort or our bank accounts or our social status in front of God, we're going to grow complacent towards God. Our idols are going to demand more and more of our time, more and more of our resources, and our hearts can go cold, and we can lose sensitivity to the things of the Lord. This is the pattern of the sinful heart. This is where we find the Israelites in chapter 13, and this is where we can find ourselves. But thank God we serve a God who desires to deliver his people. Let's read uh, chapter 13, verse 2 through 7. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So as we've seen throughout this book of Judges, despite Israel's rebellion, despite their apathy, despite their apostasy, God is at work. He's intervening. He's fulfilling his promises. Notice here there's no cry for deliverance. The author doesn't offer some description of Samson's parents that sets them apart. Uh, There's no special character traits that we see in them. There's no mention of their faith. In fact, it seems God is the last thing on their mind. They're just kind of going about their everyday lives in the Philistine world. And then God shows up. The angel of the Lord shows up. And although his appearance is awesome, Samson's mother isn't quite sure who he is yet. Is he a prophet? Is he an angel? Is he a a crazy man? She's not really sure. Regardless, he brings good news that although she is barren, although she's never been able to have children, she's going to have a son, and not just any son. This, of course, makes us think of all the miraculous births throughout Scripture, of how God can make dead things alive, 
of how he can work in seemingly hopeless situations, how he can use the weak to do his work and complete his will. The angel lets her know that her son will not just be any boy. He's going to be one that's set apart for the service of the Lord, and he gives her what on the surface seem like some strange instructions. And he reveals to her that her son that's going to be born is going to begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So notice that the angel here doesn't say that he's going to save Israel. He says he's going to begin to save. You know, we know the rest of the story, and we know that Samson is in no way a complete deliverer. We know that that's going to have to come later on. So what about these rules that the angel gives her? He tells her to drink no wine or strong drink, to eat nothing unclean, and to never cut the boy's hair, that he's to be a Nazarite from birth until death. So most of you are probably familiar with the Nazarite vow. It's found in Numbers chapter 6. And it's just a vow that people could take, that Israelites could take, as a way to separate themselves from God to God. They were to abstain from wine and strong drink or, or not be associated with anything with the vine. They were to not cut their hair and they were to not be in contact with any dead people, okay, even relatives, so not be around any corpses. This was just to be for a period of time. This wasn't something they did throughout their lives. It was just a way for them uh, to show their dedication to the Lord for a period of time in their lives. So we have some differences here between the Nazarite vow and the instructions that the angel gives Samson's mother. So, first of all, this vow that the angel gives Samson's mother is involuntary, right? Samson had no choice in this. Also, it's for an indefinite amount of time. He's going to be a Nazarite from conception until death. And the third difference we see here is that there is this command to not eat any unclean food. So why is that thrown in there? Not eat eat any unclean food when the Nazarite vow doesn't mention that. I think it gives us a little insight into the state, the spiritual state of Israel and the spiritual state of this family. It shows us that they were in no way upholding the law. This was a very basic part of the law, and if they were striving to uphold the law, they wouldn't have needed to be reminded of this. They've kind of given in to the Philistine culture, and so the angel has to remind her not to eat unclean food. So, It seems that Samson's mother believes the angel. She runs back to her husband and tells her all about it. And we're going to kind of see uh, his response here in 8 through 14. So let's take a look at that. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? 
And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I command her, let her observe. So, Manoah is like most of us guys, right? He's feeling a little left out. The angel came to his wife. He's like, what's up with that? You know, I'm the man of the house. Why didn't the angel come to me? And so he's probably a little resentful of this, maybe. Uh, He's just, you know, a little down about it. And so he wants to get all up in the middle of the situation, okay? So he prays to the Lord to send the messenger back. He, he needs to know some more guidelines. He needs some, some rules about this, how he's going to raise his son, what his mission is going to be. He, he needs more information. So the Lord graciously and generously responds to his prayer, sends the angel of the Lord back, who again appears to Manoah's wife, not Manoah, that probably fires him up a little bit. And so his wife, uh, you know, runs back to him and says, Hey, the angel's here. And uh, then Manoah begins to interact with the angel. Notice that Manoah is really completely ignorant of the angel's true identity. And he asks him uh, who he is, where did he come from. And uh, he asked if he was the one who spoke to his wife. And notice the angel of the Lord's response here. I am. Now, we've seen that other places in Scripture, haven't we? So just kind of hold on to that statement. We'll get back to that later. So we see here that Manoah is searching for more information. He wants to know what's going to happen. And the messenger really isn't giving him anything else. He just reasserts what he told Manoah's wife earlier. And uh, Manoah wants more. He's pretty persistent here. So let's read 15 through 23. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when... So that... When your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. So in verse 15, we see that Manoah still doesn't recognize who he's dealing with. He invites the angel of the Lord to share a meal with him. Now, some commentators I read said that this was almost a way of manipulating the angel, of kind of putting him in his debt. He still thinks he's dealing with a man or maybe even a prophet. The angel quickly rejects this offer 
One, because Manoah doesn't realize who he's dealing with and the angel wants to reveal himself to him. And two, this could be a possible comment on the spiritual condition of this household and of Israel. They are in no spiritual state to fellowship with the Lord in this way. Offering must come first. Atonement of sin must come first. So the angel suggests an offering. Manoah agrees, and he promptly asks the angel his name, to which the angel withholds and basically says, it is too wonderful for you to comprehend. At this point, the offering is placed on the rock. Flames leap from the rock, and the messenger is taken up towards heaven, never to return again. So it's at this point that Manoah and his wife realize that they've encountered more than a man. They've encountered God. And look at their response. They fall flat on their face. Manoah fears death because he's encountered God. And his wife, being the cool, calm, and collected one throughout this whole ordeal, calms him down. She says, Manoah, you're still breathing, buddy. He doesn't want you dead. She, she calms him in that way, and she says that the offering was accepted, and it showed approval from God. And of course, we know they survived the encounter because of the next two verses. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. So God, once again, is fulfilling his promise. Samson was born, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and throughout the next few weeks, we're going to be looking more at his life. And as we do that, you need to forget every Bible story you read about Samson as a kid, because they've all been cleaned up a whole lot. So, what do we do with this story? What do we do with this encounter? You know, it's kind of a wild story. All of the stories that we've read in Judges have been pretty wild. I think one thing that we need to see when we look at the spiritual state of Manoah and his wife, when we look at the state of Israel in these days, we have to see the danger of idolatry. We have to see that it leads to separation. We have to see that it leads to spiritual dryness. It leads to apathy towards God. But through the miraculous birth of this imperfect deliverer, Samson, we see a shadow of what we know is to come. God's a covenant God. He's a God who keeps His promises, and He's promised to save His people once and for all. Now, as I studied this passage this week and and looked at a few commentaries, uh, most of the commentators believe that the angel of the Lord was the pre-incarnate Christ. And I think this is probably the case. He refers to Himself as the I Am. He refers to Himself as wonderful beyond all comprehension, And as we look back in Judges on the times that the angel of the Lord has appeared, it seems like God has shown up. So if that's the case, think about that. The one who announces the arrival of this imperfect deliverer, who will only bring imperfect deliverance, will one day come to be the perfect deliverer. A thousand years after the birth of Samson, he comes into the world not as a king or a ruler or a man of great physical strength, but as a baby. As God who humbled himself to be born as a baby, helpless in a manger, who
who lived a perfect life to die a death that no one else could die to be a perfect Savior for us. What does that mean for us? Now, I asked you to think about a time in your spiritual walk where you've dealt with struggles, spiritual dryness, distance from God. We're going to struggle with that in this life. We're going to struggle with idols. We have a fallen nature. And as we battle our sinful hearts, we might at times find ourselves in a place where, like the Israelites... The truths about God that were once vibrant and real to us begin to seem unreal. Our hearts can be like a, like a pond on a really cold morning. They can begin to ice over. A little better analogy for East Texas and all you duck hunters, it's like a duck slough on a really cold morning that begins to ice over. Now, if you've ever been duck hunting in sub-freezing temperatures you know that you got to break ice. And you do that with anything you can. You get a stick, uh, uh, your foot, the butt of a gun, but it, and it's a lot of hard work. But if you do it, the harvest is going to be great because you're going to have the only open water for miles around and the ducks are going to be coming in. It's the same way with our hearts, except we're not going to use the butt of a gun. We're not going to use a, a stick, but we have to break Uh, the ice on our hearts. How do we do that? How do we do that? Instead of forgetting, like the Israelites were prone to do and like we are prone to do, we have to remember. We have to remember the gospel. We have to remember what Christ did for us on the cross. How he saved us despite our disobedience how he saved us while we were yet sinners, that we deserved God's wrath, that we deserved death, that we deserved destruction, but that he went in our place on the cross so that we can be reconciled to God the Father. The gospel is definitely for salvation. And if you've never known this truth, I urge you to consider Christ. But the gospel is also for renewal. Know that God will deliver his people. He kept pursuing the Israelites despite the rebellion, and he will keep pursuing his people. Expel your idols. Break the ice of your heart with the good news of the one whose name is more wonderful than we can even comprehend. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you do not leave us where we are that you do not leave us in our sin, that you've made a way for us, that through Christ we can be reconciled to you, we can be forgiven. We don't have to live in shame and fear and guilt anymore, that you can take those things away. Father, I just pray for those in here who don't know you. I pray that you pursue their hearts, that your spirit shows them their great need for you that convicts them of their sin, and that they come to you. And Father, I pray for those in here who are believers, but their hearts have begun to grow cold. I pray that you break the ice on their hearts and that they will come alive for you, to serve you, to tell others about you, 
that we will be a church that's known for that, for serving this community and serving this world. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.